pray. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and sky from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we belong to you. We are your people. Bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Rescued out of the world and into your church. And we are of all men most privileged to be a part of this, your body. Because unlike the world, we have things that they don't have. We have your spirit, your spirit to instruct us. And we have your word so that we can actually read the spirit's instruction. And because of that, Lord, we, we can have unity and purity and joy in the body that the world dreams of and fights for and will never have apart from Christ. Now, Father, I pray that you'd speak through me this morning and be glorified in this time as we evaluate our own lives, each of us, Lord, especially me. Pray, Father, that as we look into the book, we will see ourselves with all of our warts and and scars and things that we don't care to even recognize. And we will come away by your grace, resolved to be faithful in the next decision and to be actively engaged in the process of sanctification with your spirit to change us and conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. And so these things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Sometimes I just sense that the Spirit wants me to divert. And one of the blessings of having a church that really is a church family and not simply an institution where we have to have the lights right and the sound right and the timing right and everything just perfect, I always feel like I have the freedom to to say to the church body what I think it may need to hear at any given moment. And so we're going to divert a little bit from Jude, and we will come back to Jude shortly. But I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. A number of years ago, when my kids were pretty young, I came home from the office one evening, and we had a yard full of children, and they were all mine. And (laughs) they were all running to the car and pointing back up to mom's minivan, and all of them simultaneously and incoherently giving me account of something that happened. Of course, none of it made any sense to me, and so I followed them up to the driveway and over to the driver's side window and discovered as I looked through the window, um, eerily hovering from a wire between the dashboard and the headliner was my rearview mirror. Um, One of the magnificent seven, as I used to call them, (laughs) decided that would be a great handhold for either getting in or getting out or stealing the front seat from someone and, uh, and jerked my mirror off the windshield. And, um, problem was Chris didn't know how to fix it. And I confess I didn't know how to fix it either. (laughs) 
Well, we did some checking and we discovered that there was an easy fix to the mirror problem. Apparently, there's a company that makes a special epoxy just for mirrors attaching to windshields. And this is a pretty big mirror. It's got a, you know, it's got a thermometer in it and it's got a big wire that comes out of the back of it. Pretty heavy deal. And uh, so we checked and we found out about this glue. Uh, and it doesn't require much. You just take a couple of drops and you put it on the back, the metal piece, and you stick it back up on the window. And in a matter of seconds, it's a permanent fix, or at least semi-permanent until one of the kids jerks it off again. <laughs> but it was kind of an unusual glue. It wasn't crazy glue. It was a different kind of glue, and it came in two different vials that uh, somehow when you squeezed it, it mixed them together before it kind of dropped onto the metal and, um, and, and once, once the glue is there and once you've got it stuck back to the glass, it's fixed. I mean, to me, I mean, that, I love those kinds of fixes. <laughs> uh, I'm the kind of guy who can take a 20-minute project and turn it in two weeks in and, <laughs> and no time. And I thought about this this week as I was studying for this message. Wouldn't it be great if we came up with a, a kind of relational glue uh, that held people together and kept them from breaking apart. You know, the kind of secret recipe that would melt away conflict and heal wounds and bind people together in an unbreakable union. I mean, that would be something, wouldn't it? And think about what we could do if we could bottle up something like that. And think about how many families would begin enjoying reconciliation. Think about how many rebellious teenagers would actually enjoy talking to their parents again. Think about how many churches could rebuild their reputation in the community and see the glory of Christ exalted in a public. And think of how many marriages could be mended, how many divorce lawyers would go out of business. Well, I'm here to tell you today that such a solution does, in fact, exist but it can't be bottled and it can't be sold. It can't be manufactured in a factory or packaged up to, in, to be brought to an outlet like Walmart. Rather, it comes as a mixture of five spiritual ingredients that combined form a powerful relational glue that the Bible calls peace. So turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3. In fact, why don't we stand in reverence to the Lord and his word. I'm going to read a little more than just the first three verses, but we'll, that'll be my preaching text. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all, here we go, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one, or one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond, or glue, of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now the point of this passage, I think, is in the last phrase here. Paul speaks of something called the bond of peace. The bond of peace. 
What is a bond? You, you know, you, you try to put terms on this, and when you look it up in the Greek, it talks about fetters, chains, something, you're in bonds. Reality is, though, that we don't use that, I mean, unless we're talking about jail and prison. Um, but when we're talking about binding thi- or bonding things, we're talking about sticking things together. It is, it is literally, in, in the Greek, the term here is that which binds things together. It is a bond. It's like glue. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the unity of the believers. Unity of the believers. And Paul was serious about unity. He was serious about unity. We know he's talking about unity not only because he mentions it here in verse 3, but because he goes on to speak of the oneness that we have in Christ, beginning with verse 4. There is one body, one spirit. You were called with one hope. You have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. We are one. We are one. When we take the Lord's Supper, we drink the cup together. It symbolizes not only our relationship with Christ, the new covenant relationship with Christ, but our new covenant relationship with other. We are participating in it together. We are all together affirming the new covenant and saying, we belong to Christ, therefore we belong to one another. It is a unity that is given to us. It's given to us by God in Christ. Paul is serious about unity. And we see that all through this text. But how does God want us to preserve our unity? What is the spiritual glue that holds us together? Well, it's something here called peace. It's a spiritual glue made up of five different spiritual attitudes of the heart. Five different, well, four attitudes of the heart. One, you might say, is is something more objective. But mostly attitudes of the heart that combined make this spiritual glue that practically binds us together. And the five are these, truth, humility, gentleness, peace, and love. Truth, humility, gentleness, peace, and love. It might be helpful to summarize the whole text in the form of a question and answer. So here's the question. How do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called? Answer, by being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, that's not the only thing that constitutes our walking in a manner that's worthy of our calling, but that's the one Paul's focused on in this part of Ephesians. And by the way, the book of Ephesians is all about the church. It's all about the church from beginning to end. And I don't have time to demonstrate that for you, but... Read the book of Ephesians and just look at every place where it mentions the church, the body of Christ, Christ's body, uh, the the unity. There's a number of different terms that Paul uses, but it is in every single chapter. And in chapter 5, it is repeated again and again and again and again and again. Now, before we look at the five spiritual ingredients that produce unifying peace, let's make a couple of observations. Number one. The unity of the Spirit is something we are to preserve and not create. It's something that we preserve and not create. The unity that God wants us to have is not one that he, he, he hopes that someday we'll figure out what it's going to take to get it. 
Rather, it's a unity that he has already freely given us in Christ. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, you become a part of this thing called the body of Christ. You are united to it like a hand is united to an arm, like a, like a neck is united to the head. You are in that unity. It is a spiritual unity. It's not something that man can create. We are not called to come up with a plan to create some kind of artificial togetherness where we all stand on the courthouse steps and sing kumbaya or something else. We are called to maintain the unity that God has already given us by his spirit through the cross of Jesus Christ. So we're talking about two kinds of unity, really. A kind of unity that is a spiritual unity that is bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. We enter into it by grace. And then there is something called practical unity. It's a unity that's a reflection of our spiritual unity. It's a visible unity. It's a practical unity. It's a unity that should be evident in your home, in your marriage, with your children, among your children even. Among your children. That may sound like a miracle, but... We are called not to create the unity, but to maintain the unity. And that's why Paul calls it the unity of the Spirit. It's the unity of the Spirit. It's a kind of unity that exists only as a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God in the hearts of those he indwells. That's the spiritual unity. It's not something we accomplish after we're born again. It's something that God does the moment we're saved and we become united into Christ. And from that moment on, our role is to preserve what we already have, to preserve it in practical ways. Otherwise, no instruction would be needed, right? If we weren't to engage in this at some level, then no instruction would be needed. It would just be, welcome to the family. You're unified. And praise God. But we know that we tend to, in terms of practical unity, because we're sinners, we tend to fracture it. We sin against one another. We err. We handle things badly. We exalt ourselves. And this reflects on, on chapter 2, by the way, where Paul talks about the miracle of how God has taken the Jews and the Gentiles who have historically lived in constant and deadly conflict and brought them together through the gospel and made them lovers and servants of one another. Jews and Gentiles. And just read chapter 3. If you understand the conflict between the nation of Israel and the Gentiles. They weren't allowed to eat with them. They weren't allowed to go into their homes. They weren't, I mean, it was, there was a clear separation. And now God is bringing them together? What is that? It is a spiritual unity. And we are required to preserve that in practical ways. The unity of the Spirit, number two, this is the second thing I want you to understand. Not only we need to understand that it's not something we create, it's something we merely preserve. And it's hard enough just to preserve it, right? You think about your own family, what conflicts they have. How many of you have been married more than five minutes? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but not by much, brother. I saw that hand. <laughs> um, and some of, you, some of you aren't, but you want, we all know conflict. We all know conflict. We're prone to it. Unity of the Spirit is always under attack by sin. This is the second thing. It's always under attack by sin. 
The reason Paul says we must be diligent to preserve this miraculous unity given to us by Christ is because sin is always on the assault against it. And that means your sin and mine. Listen, my heart always wants to exalt itself. My heart, heart always wants people to get out of my way and conform to my agenda. Um, you see, God's plan, according to chapter 1, verse 10, is to sum up or to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, in Christ. The problem is that our sin is constantly at work to sabotage that goal. And people were always putting their own desires above everyone else's, their own felt needs above their neighbors, their own opinions over their brothers. By nature, we tend to all be self-seeking, we all tend to be self-exalting, self-promoting, self-defending. And if we don't discipline ourselves to counteract those tendencies by the Spirit, by grace, then um, serious disunity occurs in the home and in the church. It occurs in our marriages, our families, our churches, and in every aspect of human relationships. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. And so what can we do to counteract the tendency to leverage apart relationships that would otherwise be unified in Christ? What can we do? Well, we have a responsibility to do some things. And Paul gives us five things, five powerful ingredients that produce a strong bond of peace. Now, he only mentions four in this text, so let's look at the first one that he doesn't mention, um, but I'll make a case for why we should think of it in terms of the first of five rather than excluding it. And that is, number one, truth. Now, why would I say truth? And he doesn't mention truth in his short list here. I say truth because he just spent three chapters giving us truth. And as, when he is done giving us truth and a benediction in verse 20 of chapter 3, now to him who was able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to the glory, uh, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generation, forever and ever. What's he doing? He's praising God for all of this revelation of what God has done for us in Christ overcoming the reality that we are enemies of God by his grace, saving us, not by works of the law, but by his grace alone so that all the glory would go to Jesus Christ. And we could summarize that and say, all of that brings us together. We are now one. And chapter 3, again, is all about the Jews and the Gentiles even becoming one. So now we have this body made up of people who are naturally in conflict. But you are in Christ. And then he says, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore. Now, wherefore is that therefore, therefore, right? It points back to the truth. Look, we don't get this unity. If all we have is an appeal for us to be more gentle and more patient and bearing with one another, listen, then we've got nothing more than the world has. Because that's what they ask us to do. That's what we ask one another to do. But without chapters 1, 2, and 3, we don't get 4 or 5, marriage text, or 6, spiritual warfare. It starts with truth. And we've got to get the truth right. We've got to get the truth right. We've got to love the truth, study the truth. Um, we appeal to the truth. The truth is... Um, Truth is really the foundation of the whole thing. Not because it's listed here, but because Paul pounded it and he hammered it 
into this beautiful thing in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, assuming that we have the foundation of truth, we understand the gospel, we understand that God has brought us together with one another from different backgrounds, from different races, from different, you know, environments, whatever. Listen, so many of you, so many of us, we would never have been friends if it weren't for Christ, right? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I know, I assume, people look at me and go, man, if it wasn't for Jesus, <laughs> I don't know that I'd spend any time with you. I mean, you're just so different and weird, you know, just, and you don't like the things I like, and you're not drawn to the things I'm drawn to, and you, you know, you live on Mars, and I live on Jupiter or whatever, we would have never met. We would never have become friends. But God has done this. And he has drawn us together, even those who are at enmity like the Jews and Gentiles. And you look at the New Testament, and it's, it's two things he's calling us to. Truth and love. Truth and love. If all you have is truth, then you'll have pride with it and it'll destroy you. If all you have is love, and you got no truth, you're not serious about truth, then it's just going to be mushy, gushy, emotional driven, and you're in serious trouble. It's truth and love. It's truth and love. And so, let's talk about the other four things that he mentions here. Four more things that make up the complex um, ingredients to this glue, this bond called peace. And the first one is humility. The first one is humility. Notice what he says. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, uh, worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility. With all humility. Humility is one of those cardinal virtues of the Christian life. It's something that all of us need and none of us have perfected. The world loves pride. Uh, the world thrives on self-assertion, self-esteem, self-actualization. It's said that back in Paul's day, neither Greek nor Roman culture even had a word for humility. And some scholars say, therefore, Paul made this up. He had to invent a word, and I don't know if that's true or not. But some will say, because there wasn't a word, Paul had to make up a word for humility. To be humble in the Greco-Roman world was to be weak, cowardly, and effeminate. You're not going to be humble. You don't aspire toward humility. And so it may very well be that Paul coined this term. So what is humility? Or better yet, what's the difference between humility and pride? Well, if pride consists of actions and attitudes that make much of self, Humidity, humidity, <laughs> we got plenty of that, right? <laughs> humility is just the opposite. But I would ask, is it really the opposite? Is the opposite of, of pride self-deprecation? Is it self-abasement? Consider this, boasting is the response of pride to success. On the other hand, Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. 
Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have suffered and sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart from the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds pitiful, self-sacrificing. John Piper writes, The need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is the response of unapplauded pride. And so you see, the opposite of pride is not self-deprecation. Rather, it is something entirely different. It is not putting myself down. It's not putting myself up. It is exalting Christ. It is just getting your mind off of self completely. It's not my rights, my will, my opinion, my agenda. It's Christ for righteousness. It's Christ for sanctification. It's Christ for wisdom. It's Christ for everything. Christ is all. It's all about Christ exaltation. And part of the reason there's so much lack of unity both in our homes and in our churches is because our eyes are entirely focused on self rather than on Christ. We care too much about what I want, what I need, or, or how badly I've been treated, or how nobody knows my pain. And when we don't achieve the kind of response we lust for, we become angry and sulky or withdrawn or something else, and our experiential unity begins to degrade, begins to rust, it begins to deteriorate. And it's probably not going to fall apart right away, but eventually, eventually it just all falls apart. As long as you're seeking your own agenda. And behind every conflict, there's the root of pride. And behind every act of reconciliation is a Christ-exalting humility. And it's not just humility. Paul says it's with all humility. You see that? With all humility. That means all kinds of humility. All kinds of humility. In every situation. In other words, no matter what happens, we're always trying to divert people away from ourselves and onto Christ. I remember as a young preacher, people would come to me and compliment the sermon, and, and I always was so uncomfortable with that. What do I do with that? What do I do? Thank you? Well, praise, you know, what do you say? Praise God, I spent 20 hours in the study. You know, and I learned. When people come and they appreciate the message, you just say, praise God. It's his word, it's his message. Um, if, you, if you just read it purely out of scripture, you'll benefit from it. You insert me and and there's probably going to be a little degrade. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. Just take the attention away from me. It doesn't belong there. That's why it feels uncomfortable. And someone comes and, you, and, they, and they compliment you, and you think, oh, what do I do with this? I know who I am. I know how sinful I am. I know how wicked I am. I know how, how many times, I, and I'm not. You know, even Jesus said, why do you call me good? He was confronting something. He actually was good. But for us, nobody's all that. Nobody's worthy. 
to be worshipped and praised. And it's good to encourage one another. It's, incur- it's, in- it's good to say those things. It's also good to respond well and just say, oh, thank you so much and praise God. Praise God for that. Praise Christ. He is worthy of our admiration. He alone is worthy of our admiration. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you ever thought about that? Um, maybe, you know, how's your walk with the Lord going? Oh, not so good. I wonder why that is. Hmm. Well, I don't know why it is. I, I, I can't tell you why it is. One of the things you might consider, though, is God may be opposed to you. <laughs> really? I thought he was a God of grace. He is, and he loves you if you're his child. But if you are a proud person, God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. In other words, cultivate humility in your life. Cultivate humility in your life. Strive to find practical ways to make much of Christ and nothing of yourself. Learn to have the attitude of John Newton who wrote, Then let me boast with holy Paul that I am nothing. Christ is all. I love that. If you get an email from me, it says that in my signature. It reminds me every time I send an email. Christ is all. Christ is all. I am nothing. Christ is all. I need, to, I need to be reminded, you know, ten times a day. And so do you. But the glue of peace contains other attributes as well. Not just humility. Here's another one, gentleness. Truth, humility, and now gentleness. Word for gentleness means a mild, being mild-spirited or self-controlled. It's the opposite of vindictiveness and vengeance. Jesus promised blessing upon people who weave this character quality into their lives. Matthew 5, verse 5, he says this. This is in the Beatitudes, right? Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. It's the same word for gentle. Blessed are the gentle. And this is not the idea of being a spineless, passive person without an opinion of your own. That's not what it's about. A truly meek person is a man or woman of Uh, perhaps great mental strength, but knows how to keep himself under control for the sake of other people. He knows how to keep his mind and his mouth under control for the good of other people, for the glory of God. We need this. You You know who needs it most? I need this most. You know, I tell people all the time, whatever your area of greatest giftedness is probably going to be your area of greatest temptation. I can sin with my mouth in a heartbeat. David demonstrated meekness in 1 Samuel 24. He had the opportunity to take his enemy, Saul, and kill him. David was with his men hiding from Saul. And so when they saw Saul's army coming, they ran into a cave. And Saul got near the cave and had to use the restroom. And so he went into the cave to do that, very vulnerable. And David snuck up behind him with a knife and cut off the tassel from his robe and didn't kill him. 
And then he went on to tell Saul about it. Saul, why are you chasing this dead dog? Why are you chasing me? I'm a nobody. And look, I just had the opportunity to kill you. I'm not trying to kill you. You are my father. I am like a son to you. That's meekness. It's gentleness. It's being gentle. It's not always using all of the authority and all of the power that you possess. Whether that's mental or whether it's physical, whether it's verbal. That means sometimes when you're in conflict with somebody and you sit down at your computer and your mind is racing and you're just going to give them a piece of your mind, don't. You don't have that much to lose, probably. I don't. And it's so dangerous. If you're gentle, you're not going to do that. If there is an issue that needs to be addressed, you'll say, hey, can we meet? Can we just talk? I want to ask questions. Moses was described as very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth, Numbers 12, 3. And yet he fearlessly confronted Pharaoh in the name of the Lord. That's gentleness. It's having your powers under control. And Jesus was the personification of meekness, and yet he was almighty God and not afraid to take a whip and drive out the money changers. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek. That is, I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Bring your children to me. I'll bless them. I'll play with them. I mean, it doesn't say that in the Bible. I just imagine Jesus, really, if he's humble and meek, he just enjoyed children, enjoyed being with them, and got after the disciples that day, right? They were saying, no, 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 don't, don't, bother, don't bother the master with the children. And Jesus says, let them come. Let them come. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. That is gentleness. Gentleness. It's not using all of your powers in your relationship with other people when there's a problem. You restrain yourself. You demonstrate love and kindness. My wife, when I was a young pastor, just, you know, failing to learn this. And she would come to me whenever there was a conflict and say, Honey, remember, grace always wins. Grace always wins. I know there's a Christian song about that now. They haven't given her any credit for that. But grace always wins. Listen, just because a person is smarter than others or more talented or stronger or more gifted doesn't mean he can lord that over them. We rank ourselves under one another, not over. We don't lord our gifts and our talents and our abilities or our authority over others. To the contrary, the greater the giftedness, the greater the need for self-control, the greater the need for gentleness. And by the way, the greater the power that resides in gentleness when you're gentle. I tell you, there's nothing that can do more damage to the unity of the church or home like a really smart guy who uses his intellect or his theological prowess to have his own opinions and preferences prevail. I had friends in seminary like this, always ready, always ready to argue and dive into someone else's theological argument or come up with one of his own. And it used to, man, it used to bother me. 
and mostly because I didn't have the intellect to keep up with them, and it was frustrating. But it always it bothered me on another level, too. Is this what Christ called us to do? Is this why we're in seminary, to learn to do this? <laughs> I want out. I don't want to be a part of that. And man, we have to be really careful of this in the home. If, if we're not careful, we can take this leadership too f- far. We can go to an extreme that will make everybody in your home hate you. If you have to be in charge of everything and you have to call all the shots and you have to control, they'll hate you for that. Or we can get in the habit of lashing out in anger every time someone challenges our opinion. This is the opposite of meekness. It's the opposite of gentleness. A person who is angry by every nuance or inconvenience that happens to them knows nothing of gentleness or meekness. And his attitudes, thoughts, and actions will work to drive a wedge between people who should be enjoying sweet fellowship and unity in Christ. You want to know how to preserve the unity of the Spirit in your home and in the church? You want to know how to start mending your, your church or your home? Saturate your soul with the truth, number one. Number two, clothe yourselves with humility and treat the other person or people with gentleness, even if they have sinned. And the fourth ingredient in this strong bond called peace is patience. And it is inextricably tied to gentleness. And the KJV uses a more descriptive English word here. It says, gentleness with, love, with long-suffering. With long-suffering. This is a patient person. It can take, a patient person can take quite a beating. Um, he can stand for a long time without getting his way before he's really tempted to retaliate. You know, some people have trained themselves to seek revenge at the slightest infraction. I know that. I grew up in New Jersey. And that was the law of the land, and in the home as well. And among all my friends, you know, growing up on the streets in Bordentown, New Jersey, um, there wasn't gentleness, there wasn't humility, there wasn't patience. Patience? How are you ever going to get your way if you're patient? You see this all the time in boys. If one boy walks past another and their shoulders touch, one of them's going to turn around and punch the other one. Right? What was that? You know, I hear you boys snickering out there <laughs> and girls. It's not long-suffering. It's not long-suffering. I understand that can be done in fun, and I'm not down on that. I do that sometimes myself with my boys just to provoke them a little. <laughs> and and it, it's, it's their love language, so it, it helps. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is pretty common in marriages as well. One party will make a hurtful comment and the other will come back with something snarky or hurtful. And it happens in churches. It happens wherever there are sinners. Listen, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about my family, my kids, my marriage. Don't expect to find a lot of unity in a home and church like that. A person who is patient is one who trusts God even when the circumstances are not going his way. Thomas Watson wrote this, Patience is nothing else but faith spun out. If you would lengthen patience, be sure to strengthen faith. 
Now let me say it again. Patience is nothing else but faith spun out, or we would say worked out. If you would lengthen patience, be sure to strengthen faith, which is why trials, James says, produces patience, because a trial will drive you to faith. You have no one else to trust but the Lord. And the more trial you're in, the more you'll find yourself praying and trusting and pleading. Patience is nothing more than faith spun out. And that's right, patience is all about faith. One author wrote this, that uh, patience is um, waiting with God in the unplanned place and walking with God at the unplanned pace. It's waiting with God in the unplanned place, which means wherever you are, you don't want to be there. Whatever your circumstance, you don't want it. Whatever that person is doing, you want it to stop. It's waiting with God in the unplanned place. That may be at a red light. <laughs> I remind myself, of, I have a simpler way to say this, um, and maybe less helpful, but it helps me because it's short. But when, I get, when I'm in a hurry and I get to a traffic light, I remind myself of this. Where am I right now? I'm in God's place. And how fast am I moving? Exactly at God's pace. I repent. <laughs> it's waiting with God in the unplanned pl place and walking with God at the unplanned pace. No matter what my circumstances, I am in God's place, moving at God's pace. It may not be what I want. It may not be what I planned. But I can believe that in the providence of God, he has orchestrated this for my good. When someone gets in the way of what you want, how do you respond? Do you get frustrated? Do you become angry? Do you get mad? We were on our way down to Waco the other day, and we were on 35W headed south. And, um, oh yeah, <laughs> half, half the congregation just broke out with a groan, yeah. Now you could say that about North, it's even worse, but, uh, you know, these two cars... Uh, they weren't bumper to bumper. There was a little space, and uh, this woman driving a little Volkswagen um, decided she wanted that space, and she pulled into it. And boy, the guy uh, behind her got angry and started riding her bumper and then came up beside her and then got in front of her and pulled in in front of her and hit his brakes, and I'm slowing down. I'm thinking, okay, if they get into a wreck, you know, I need a half a mile, three-quarters of a mile. I'm not going to be anywhere near this. And you can tell the anger was just... And it was dangerous. And James warns about that. James chapter 4, your anger can lead to death. Do you get mad? Do you get frustrated? Do you start expounding on all the reasons they need to step aside for your sake? And give you what you want? And by the way, again, this is why marriages so often fail. This is why churches fail. This is why parent-child relationships fail. It's really pretty simple. Pretty simple to understand. Hard to address because we're so proud. The patient person is slow to anger, slow to retaliation, slow to confrontation. If you have a family or church full of people exercising humility, gentleness, patience, then you're well on your way to making the kind of peace that preserves the unity of the Spirit. But there's one more ingredient to throw into the mix. 
And I'm going to call that forbearing love. Forbearing love. Watch this. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. The word for love here is, you guessed it, agape. It's, um, it's the greatest love. It's um, maybe not linguistically, but we tend to think of it as the love of God for his people, and it certainly is that in places like John 3.16. It's a kind of love that God expresses toward us. It's a kind of love he expects us to, address, to express toward one another. It's a love that's not easily shaken. It's not a love that seeks its own desires at the expense of other people. In the ESV, it's a love that bears with other people's quirks, character flaws, mistakes without cutting them off or judging or condemning them. It is a forbearing love. It is bearing with one another in love in the ESV. The idea is that this love is enduring. It's tolerant. It doesn't have a a hair trigger. Um, a, A person who loves like this is able to tolerate a lot of discomfort without cutting the other person off. And when the other person is saying something or, or accusing in, in ways that are unfounded, he's not quick to slap back or to attack. It's closely associated with the other character qualities already mentioned. It's what Peter had in mind when he wrote, love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8. Now, I'm not saying that, um, that you should never confront To the contrary, the scriptural pattern is confrontation. But you know what? It's gentleness and love and humility and patience first. It's getting the board out of your own eye before you try to pick out the shards of a broken contact in someone else's eye. Although much of what we use as grounds to cut someone down or out of our life is really not sin. And yet we treat it that way. We get all self-righteous. It's often just a matter of differences. Sometimes it's cultural differences. Sometimes different interests, different communication styles, different tastes, different sense of humor, or, edu- or, or some educational level. Just different. And because it's different, I don't want to be around you. And maybe it's a physical ailment. I, don't, I just don't want to be around you. Or maybe you're just new. Maybe you're just new. Well, that's a good question. When, when a visitor shows up at Calvary, do they feel like they're being loved, cared for, that there's unity here, and everybody is welcome to come and be part of this unity? You know Christ, you're a part of us already, so let's get after it. Or do you just avoid them? Oh, you know, they're new. I, you know, I don't want to be bothered, and I don't want to... It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. And I praise God. You know, I'm raising these issues... Um, on the one hand, because I see them in my own life, and I see them in the church, but there's other things that I see in the church. I see a lot of patience. I see a lot of love. This, this body is marked by love. A lot of grace, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of appropriate con- confrontation. I see that too. And I'm just saying, as, as Paul would say, It's no trouble for me to remind you of these things. Let's just press on to them 
into them more and more. Let's look at the mirror of the word and see where we fail to live up to what God's standard is. From time to time, we all just need to be reminded of these things. Because pride can sneak into your life and out of your mouth and you didn't even realize it. And humility will go back and take care of it. And can because of the gospel. Wayne Mack used to come to town a lot and, and he would always remind us not to look at another person as a problem with legs. You ever feel that way? Paul says, come on now, be forbearing with one another. After all, that's how God relates to you. Patient, gentle. He gives you his truth. He's the one who invented the truth and gave it to you and told you to learn it. And then when you fail to live up to it, he's patient. He's kind, and he humbles himself. Do you realize that God has to humble himself? What is it, Psalm 14 that says, uh, or is it 114, says, or 113, somewhere in the Psalms, it says <laughs> that uh, the Lord humbles himself to look into the things that are in heaven, let alone earth. And David says, when I look at the moon and the stars, I, I got to ask, Lord, what is man that you think of him. He must humble himself to relate to us. But he does it because he's not only a God of power and truth, he's a God of love and grace and humility and gentleness and patience. He knows that we're but dust. He treats us like children. Well, there's so much more that can be said here about each one of these characteristics, but mainly... We need to understand that the unity of the body is not a secondary issue with God. He has created our unity in Christ. He desires that our practical experience of that unity will be a true reflection of our spiritual unity. But left to ourselves and our sinful passions, we'll fall into a kind of selfishness that shatters our practical unity. But when we walk in the Spirit, we can preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And you know what peace is? Peace is no conflict, <laughs> no war, no division. It's peace. It's peace. It's what God wants. And, and, and think again, Jew and Gentile, just one chapter before. Jew and Gentile, what do they need? Peace. Peace. The glue that is called peace. And what is that made of? Truth? Yes. But not just truth. It's not just truth. It's also humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And we need all of them. And I don't know about you, but I needed this reminder. I need to be reminded of this every, every day of my life. I need some preacher to preach this to me. And since I'm the preacher, <laughs> I got to preach this to me. And so you got to hear it a little bit. But I do have some questions for you. And your small group leaders will thank me for this. <laughs> Preserving our practical unity isn't easy. It is necessary, not only for the glory of God, but for our own joy. If we are able to walk in a manner of the worthy of the Lord, worthy of our calling with one another, 
We've got to pursue these things. So, I ask you, and this is just the beginning of questions. Did you realize that you were called to do your part to preserve the unity of the church? Do you know that? Do you understand unity, the spiritual unity, practical unity, the fellowship that we have with one another? That's practical unity. We are bound together, but we have fellowship with one another. Do you realize that you are called to be tenacious about preserving that unity so that this little church, little church can let its light shine before men in such a way that they will see our good works and glorify our God? And they'll walk in here and see different nationalities, people from different parts of the world, different parts of the country, and they'll say, wow, this is a really odd group. You've got blacks and whites and Asians and Hispanics and, and everybody in one room, and you're smiling at each other, and you're joyful, and you want to be together, and you eat with each other, and you sing together. And how is that possible? It's what the world desperately is longing for and can't figure out because they've rejected the very cure that they say they need. You realize that you were called to do your part to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Secondly, are you cultivating humility? Are you actively cultivating humility as an attitude of your heart, as an attitude of your speech? Is your speech humble? Let me encourage you, um, and you small group leaders can do this as a practical assignment. Dig through Proverbs. Get past you know, Proverbs chapter 7 and start digging from, from then on and just look for scriptures that address your speech. And I guarantee you won't have enough time to find them all because there are so many. The Lord's concerned about how we talk with one another. Are you cultivating humility in your attitudes and in your speech? Are, are, you, are you thinking, how is this person going to receive this? If I word it this way, it, that may come across snarky. If I word it this way, or if I ask a question, maybe I should ask a question instead. Maybe that would come across gracious. Are you, are you cultivating humility? Third, are you practicing gentleness with others rather than being critical, sarcastic, and harsh? Are you practicing gentleness with others rather than being critical, sarcastic, and harsh? Grow, growing up in New Jersey, my love language was sarcasm, and so was my mother's and her mother's, I think. And uh, it's really hard for me to break that habit. It's really hard. But if I can say it at, I say it at the wrong, t wrong time to the wrong person, and it just flows out of my tongue, man, just as smooth as silk, and I can tear their heart out. And have no intention of doing so <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> Are you practicing gentleness with others? And, and that's not only with your tongue, that's with your keyboard as well. Be careful about writing things, confrontational things. You're listening to a, a woman teacher this week. <laughs> um, my wife is, is doing a Bible study, and she said, hey, listen to this lady teach. And I did, and uh, she's teaching out of Second John. And Second John is all about truth and love. Truth and love. And I'm not going to be able to find the key text here. But truth and love. We need both. And, oh, and, and at the end of Second John, here it is. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face 
so that your joy may be complete. And she speculated a little bit here, and she said, you know, I suspect John had some serious things he needed to talk about with them, but he decided it'd be better to do that face-to-face than to write it down where the other person can look at it and be crushed again and again and again and again. Be careful when you're dealing with conflict not to do a lot of that by email or texting. Face-to-face. Otherwise, it's just going to drag on and on and on and on, and you guys will, why not just sit down, do the hard thing, eye-to-eye, face-to-face, keep yourself in check, bring a mediator if necessary, and talk. And when you're done talking, it's done. It's done. No more emails need to be written, except ones of thankfulness and gratefulness and love. Are you practicing gentleness? with others rather than being critical, sarcastic, and harsh? Here's a fourth. Are you being patient with those who seem to get in your way or seem to withhold from you the things that you desire? Do you remind yourself that you are always in God's place, moving at God's pace? God sees. He knows your hardships. And he's promised, no good thing will I withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so if you feel like you don't have something that you want, remember this. God is involved in that. And he is not withholding something from you that is necessary and good. If he is withholding it from you, it is for your good, no matter how painful it may be. Don't sin as a response. Respond with grace and humility and love. Respond by going to the Lord and saying, God, first, what's in my heart? Could these accusations be true? Could it be real? Do I need to repent and work on yourself? And the last one here is, is your love for others fragile or forbearing? Fragile or forbearing? Are you quick just to cut it off? Stop talking to that person? Done with you? Or are you forbearing? Does love cover a multitude of sins? And do you confront in the right way at the right time? And these are things that make for peace, both in the church and in our home. And we teach our children this, it'll make peace among them. They'll grow up loving each other. By God's grace, right? This isn't behaviorism, but it is by God's grace and applying the means of grace to every relationship we have. This is what God wants for us in the home. This is what God wants for us in the church. And as we pursue it and he blesses it, there is great joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you that you didn't leave us just to try to figure out how to live life in a way that, that is joyful and healing and reconciling. But you've taught us in your word, and as we take time to learn it, then we are able to apply it to our own hearts and counsel others and disciple others and help them bring these things to bear on their hearts as well. Well, Father, may none of us be so proud as to look at a passage like this or hear a message and be offended or think that I don't need this. We all need it. To the extent that we are all sinners, we need to be reminded of how we fall short and how God through the gospel can change us and make us a more bright and beautiful ornament in his crown for his glory. And so we praise you for it, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name.